Brother Meadows asked me if I would uh, speak at the Conquest meeting. It wasn't anything I was particularly excited about doing, simply because we get so many men into our district. And, and last evening, there's no doubt about it, we heard from God. Praise God. I told Brother Meadows, I said, well, when these men are long gone, I'll still be here. And there's many opportunities that I have to minister people within our district. But I do appreciate our district. We just, we have a great district. No doubt about it. Praise God. He asked me not to stick with any particular subject, but just to give you spiritual potpourri today. And we want to do that. Uh, a lot of my ministry in our local assembly uh, is very difficult for our tape men to uh, to handle because they don't really know what it's all about. Uh, <laughs> you will find in the scripture <clears throat> that some of the greatest sermons ever preached uh, were of this fashion. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, for an example, it's addressed by location, not by subject matter. It's just that Jesus stood up and he ministered. And he seemed to meet the needs of the people. Uh, one time I preached, and I didn't label it any particular thing, and I went back to the tape booth, and uh, the man wanted to, the tape man asked me to give him a title, and I said, well, you'll have to figure that out. And later on I saw it back in the back, and he had it labeled table scraps. <clears throat> I think he, he thought it was probably leftovers from a lot of other messages. <laughs> I came here in the house of the Lord last evening and saw this beautiful slide, which Brother Tamil has given me a copy of this. The slide that he had on last evening is taken from Matthew twenty-one thirteen, and I want to start there. Uh, this is something that I felt in my heart before I arrived, so I, I'm not uh, certainly not changing. This is a result of the slide, but I felt when I saw it a great confirmation of the Spirit. I want to talk a little bit about our reputation that we have with the world, with each other, labels we put on situations. Uh, basically, tying this in with prayer. Matthew 21 13, uh, Jesus cleansed the temple twice in his ministry. The Bible says, And said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. Now, I know that sometimes preachers have a tendency to want to cleanse the temple every time they get up to preach. I, in fact, I, I remember one conference I was in which a preacher was talking. He said, Well, boy, Jesus, when he got up to preach, he... He cleaned house. He cleaned house uh, actually only twice in his ministry. Uh, Jesus was very unique in the fact that him being God manifested in the flesh, knowing all things, omniscient, uh, he went right along with a, a man by the name of Judas and uh, really did not discriminate against him was not biased against him, uh, no doubt allowed this man to lead in prayer and maybe even in some morning devotions. <laughs> and yet uh, uh, he, he gave him enough rope to hang himself and, and really never took action against him. There are certain things that we need to take care of and there are certain things that we have to let God take care of. Now, the scripture I'm making reference to, uh, Jesus is saying that I want my house to have a reputation. And that reputation is that it should be a house of prayer. Now, he says you're giving it a, a bad reputation. Uh, when people are thinking of it, they're thinking of it as a den of thieves. And, of course, because of the uh, fact that they were... Uh, buying and selling uh, to their own profit and to their own gain. Uh, I am certainly not against churches buying and selling, but I think we can become so business-oriented that we do portray 
or we are labeled by individuals uh, and perhaps uh, rightly labeled by individuals in a fashion which God does not want us to be labeled. Now, Jesus said, My house and the reputation of my house must be that it is a house of prayer. Now, I appreciate what Brother Meadows said concerning Brother uh, Mike Williams' message last evening on worship. And I'll tell you, I don't know that I've ever heard a message on worship that I, I, I was blessed any more than last evening. I mean, that was a marvelous message. No doubt about it. Uh, worship is something that should be conducted in the house of God. <clears throat> and it is extremely important that we uh, worship in His house. The Bible says that we should enter into His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise. No doubt about it. That's, uh, that's part of it. And we as Pentecostals to... The church world, we have a reputation as as being people of worship. Uh, we are labeled that way by a lot of people. I had uh, a religious news editor to come to our church not too long ago. If someone would get me a glass of water, I would appreciate it. I'm having a little voice problem. A religious news editor came to our church. I did not know at the time that he was the religious news editor of Capital Times. He came on Sunday morning. Sat right close to the back door. And I noticed that he was writing all during my preaching. Then Sunday afternoon he gave me a call and he said, I didn't get the opportunity to meet you because I had another appointment, so I had to slip out right at the close of your message. But I wanted to call and tell you that your church has developed quite a reputation it's known as a house of praise. Uh, we have received many calls from people in the, in the religious community expressing interest in Calvary Gospel Church, people who have come, and asked that uh, you go over and personally observe. You might find something there you want to write about. Well, <clears throat> the situation was that when he came, uh, we had little or no worship at all that day. I just felt for some reason that I wanted to just start right out by preaching. So our Sunday school classes were all in session, and I just got right into the preaching of the Word and took all morning teaching and preaching. Well, he told me, he said, you know, you have been labeled as a house of praise. But uh, he said, I, I'd like to make some statements about your church that would give your church a little more balanced than what I thought. Thank you, Brother Meadows. And what I thought that you folks had. He said, I didn't realize that you people were so heavy in the Word. And he said, I want you to know that you're a heavyweight in the Word of God. And he wrote an article in Capital Times uh, concerning that, uh, which was a very complimentary article. No doubt about it. We need praise in the house of God. And I'm, the statements I'm going to make about worship and about prayer and about the Word is not designed design to take one thing away from Brother Williams' message or anything that we do in the house of God. Because I am a personal believer that many times... Through preaching, you cannot move people, but when they observe people worshiping, they will be moved. There's no doubt about it. There's something about people who sit quietly and watch someone dancing in the Spirit, talking in tongues, or singing and praising God in the Spirit, that'll move them. There's no doubt about it. And certainly we need to praise God like never before. And when it comes to the preaching of the Word... I think that uh, all of our churches should be heavy in the Word. And I, I personally feel that one reason why we do not see many more miracles and things that we need to see in the realm of the supernatural is because as preachers we don't proclaim it the way we need to proclaim it. You see, it's said in Mark, the 16th chapter, verse 
16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God, and they went forth and preached everywhere. I think one of the misconceptions that we have is that we feel that the Word of God should be preached primarily in church. If you notice in the vestibule of this church, there uh, right out on my right, as you go out on the north side of the building, you'll see that there is a chart of Bible studies. See, the Word of God is being preached in the community. And this is the reason why this church is growing the way this church is growing. Now, the situation that we have is this. They went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the Word with signs following. Now, this is a very simple statement, but I don't want you to forget it. You see, if there's nothing preached, there can be nothing confirmed. And this is the reason why that a lot of churches are not having the growth because nobody's telling it, nobody's preaching it. So if there's nothing preached, there can be nothing confirmed. If you don't preach about the Holy Ghost, people will not receive the Holy Ghost. If you do not preach about baptism in the name of Jesus Christ, people will not be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. If you want to have healings in your assembly, you've got to preach and proclaim that Jesus Christ can heal. Now, if you don't preach that, then there, there can be no confirmation when there's nothing preached. And God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save, uh, to, to save us. Uh, so, so we know the value of preaching. There's no doubt about it. The statement, however, that Jesus made was uh, making reference to uh, a situation that uh, occurred in prophecy in the book of Isaiah. If you turn to Isaiah 56, verse 7, Isaiah 56, 7, the Bible says, Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called the house of prayer for all people. Now, when you read this, you're, you're thinking automatically that this is talking about Israel. The truth of the matter is, this is prophecy concerning the New Testament church and the church age that we live in. Now, when we see a statement like this that Jesus made, we automatically think of the Old Testament temple, and, of course, we think of the, the tabernacle. But uh, we spiritualize a lot of the, the Old Testament and bring it into, into focus. Uh, uh, we sing the chorus, I will enter into his courts with thanksgiving. Uh, and and we, we apply that to, to this physical building. Uh, and and, and we, we don't have a problem with it at all. Uh, Jesus uh, spiritualized that of the Old Testament when he talked to the woman at the well. If you notice in John 4, the Bible says in verse 19, The woman said unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. Mountain. Now this is he's making reference to the Old Testament and also to the prophecy of the New and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know that we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit, and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. Now, there's no mention of prayer made here. But we know that putting all of this together, Jesus said, above and beyond the preaching that takes place in the house of God, which we cannot in any way devaluate, 
We can't, you know, if anything we need to do, we need to appraise it, and we need to see the preaching uh, promoted. We need to see uh, the preaching advertised. We need to see it proclaimed to the community. That is the importance of it. Uh, Jesus said, but there's a reputation that I want my house to have that is much greater now than, than just a house of preaching. He also said, now, it's important for us to worship God in spirit and in truth. And we all know the value of praise, especially when you look at the tabernacle of David in the Old Testament and compare it as a type of the New Testament church. But above and beyond the house of God being called a house of praise, a house of worship, Jesus said, I want a reputation to be placed on my house, and I want that to be called the house of prayer. Now, I'm very much concerned about this, and the reason why is because I think when we get down to the real nitty-gritty of the issue, when we think about revival, uh, all of us will agree that revival, in, in every case in the Old Testament, in every case in the New Testament, was born out of prayer. It's, it's amazing what we know about prayer, and yet how little we actually exercise uh, prayer. Uh, when the altar call is given, for an example, you have about a third of the church that comes to the altar, about two-thirds of the church, they just dismiss themselves and walk away. Now, Brother Tamil, uh, uh, when I first came to the Lord years ago, our pastor, uh, we didn't have a lot of visitors. Uh, if we didn't have a visitor, uh, he went and, and knelt down. He called us all to prayer uh, at the conclusion of every service, and we knelt down to pray, and none of us would dare get up until he finished praying. He set the pace. He knelt down and he prayed. If he prayed an hour, everybody stayed on their knees for an hour. Nobody got up and nobody left. You wouldn't dare sneak out. Uh, you just wouldn't do that. Uh, you just uh, you honored what he was doing. If, uh, if, if somebody was at the altar, he called you up there. And the whole church came. Now I know that because our churches are larger, it's, it's virtually impossible for everybody to get uh, around the front to pray for seekers. But uh, I also know that uh, uh, the largeness of churches come as a result of the blessings of God upon the congregation. And God blesses the congregation for a reason. Now, you've got to remember one thing about the Old Testament. God gave Israel a very sound warning. He said, now remember when you enter into the promised land. He said, uh, when you live in houses that you did not build, and, and, you, and you go and, and, and you uh, uh, harvest uh, crops that you didn't plant, and he said, I just want you to remember this, that, uh, that you must uh, understand that, that it all comes from God. And, and God gives you the ability to get wealth, and God can make you wealthy, and He can make you healthy, and He can make you solid, and He can make you sound. But He gave them a warning. And the warning was that when the blessings of God rest upon you as a result of doing something good, out of that can come the greatest curse of your life when you forget about God. Now you will notice one thing about the Old Testament tabernacle. God gave to Moses the plan in the mount and told him exactly how to build the tabernacle and each article of furniture. Now you will notice one thing, however, that when... The temple of Solomon was built, and when they built this, God told uh, David how this thing should be built. And they took all of the furniture, ex the, the exact furniture, into that great place of splendor and glory. There was uh, uh, nothing on the planet earth that would compare to Solomon's temple. People from all over the world came to see not only how God was blessing Israel, or how He blessed the temple, but, but, but how He was blessing all of Israel. And the Queen of Sheba had this to say, the half has never yet been told. But uh, when it came to the Ark of the Covenant, take the same Ark, and we want you to put it right back in the same place. We want the, the holy place separated from the Holy of Holies by this veil. We want the, the altar of incense, the same size, everything. 
We want the table of showbread. We want the golden candlesticks. And you put the brazen laver out in the courtyard exactly where it was, the same size and everything. But there's one thing that God told David to do. And when David had the plan, David did not build it but received the plan. He said, but there's one thing I want Israel to do. I want them to take the old altar and I want them to redo it. And he gave them new dimensions. And the only article of furniture changed in size from Solomon's temple or from the tabernacle in the wilderness to Solomon's temple was the size of the altar. And he said, now I want you to make this a much bigger altar indicative of when the blessings of God come upon us that if there's anything we need to do is to keep in mind that it was the altar that brought us where we are and it will be the altar that will keep us where we are because the altar is the place in which death occurs it is the place in which life also comes forth from the blood uh I'm concerned about this because I see so many Christians just getting bogged down and and 90% of the people that come in my office for counseling, when I ask them, have you been praying? It's like, "Uh uh-oh, I forgot about that. No, I haven't been. And uh, we uh, we have early morning prayer at our church and uh, uh, I I reached a little point in which I was not only a little discouraged but a little disgusted with our people. It was hard to get them out to pray. You see what people want to do, they say, uh, well, or excuses that they make. They say, well, what I'd really like to do is just uh, utilize my time a little bit better because, uh, you see, we live in a, a very busy society and it's, uh, it's much more convenient for me to, to pray at home. Well, the truth of the matter is, when I began to question people that had run into some monumental problems, I found out that, that a lot of elders of our churches, of our church, uh, their sum total of prayer was uh, driving their automobile to, to, to work in the morning. Uh, uh, Christian staff workers prayed on their way to church uh, in the morning. Well, some of them live a, a good three minutes from church. And, uh, you know, you, you expect to get in there and you're going to teach these precious little darlings about the Lord and about how to uh, develop character and how to be strong and how to be submissive and how to be humble and and, and such, and, and you haven't prayed yourself. And uh, then you're going to go in the house of God as an elder, uh, as, as a leader of a group of people in the church, and you're going you're to tell them how to be on fire. You're going to tell them how to be spiritual. And the sum total of your prayer life was conducted in, in the rush hour of the morning. Uh, that's not right. It isn't right. No, it really isn't right. And I know that all of us are confronted with this business of time. There's no doubt about it. I want to point out something that I I think is very, very important for us to understand. If you look back in the book of Daniel, the seventh chapter, just turn back there to us, uh, uh, with me rather. Uh, In Daniel, the seventh chapter, uh, now this is talking about the Antichrist, it's talking about the system that's going to come upon the face of the world in the last days. And, of course, we know that Paul spoke of the spirit of Antichrist that's in the world today. We are, we are seeing the development uh, of the Antichrist system in our world today. If you, uh, if, if you read any news this morning about the Mideast and about the fact that uh, uh, the Secretary of State was in, in, in France, was it yesterday or maybe this, this morning, I was reading this, and, and uh, he's meeting, meeting with the French people, and then he's going to Germany, and... And, uh, of course, uh, Margaret Thatcher had just been appointed uh, in, in Israel uh, to head a committee, not in Israel, pardon me, in Britain to head a committee because uh, she was basically uh, on her way out because she opposed the united Germany. Uh, we know, uh, not Germany, but Europe, uh, as a result of Germany being united. She said, uh, we don't want a, a one-currency uh, Europe, and we don't want a one-government uh, Europe. But the European people say, we want it. And, and evidently, Britain says, we want it. Because that was the issue that, that caused her so much grief that she, she resigned. So, uh, you see, we see this in the world. Revelation, the sixth chapter, after the rapture has taken place. The rider of the white horse. Uh, he offered peace. Uh, uh, the second rider uh, was the rider uh, of the red horse. And he took peace off the earth. And, 
And I, I'm a firm believer that the ride of the red white horse is not the Antichrist, but it, it is a, it, it's a situation that occurs. And the reason why I think it's a situation, uh, a condition, is because all the other riders were conditions. And uh, so there is a condition in our world today. It's a condition of false peace. We want peace. We want peace. We want peace. Jesus said in the moment they say peace, peace, then sudden destruction. And so we see that that system is in operation. Now in Daniel 7, the Bible says that the thing that the Antichrist is going to want to do, in verse 25, and he shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given unto his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. Now, basically what the Scripture is saying, the one thing that the system of Antichrist will introduce into the world is this, that he will develop a plan to wear out the saints. Now, how will he do this? By changing laws and by changing times. Basically, he's going to offer to us particular laws in which uh, uh, it restricts us so that we, can, we, can, we, we really don't... Or it's just not convenient for us to... Uh, to, to live for God and to pray. And, and also, he, he's going to change times so that uh, it won't be that way. Now, let me just say this. Uh, in, in the original uh, beginning of time, God made the day to work and He made the nights to rest. But uh, after the turn of the century, uh, and because of uh, uh, America being industrialized and because of war and everything, we came up with swing shifts. So we have a second shift and we have a third shift and uh, graveyard shift, they call it, rightly so. Uh, and uh, uh, after a while, things get kind of crossed up. And, and, and after a while, daylight savings time comes along. And Congress uh, uh, enacts this. And, and the reason why, they said, uh, because in the summer hours, it's just nice to have more daylight time. Because so many people are working hard and they, they need recreation and they need to take care of this and that. And, and after a while, you find that, that things have been changed so that... Uh, uh, your schedule is so busy. Uh, it's amazing to me that with all the automation we have, all the push-button facilities and everything, that uh, we don't really have time for God. But that's a part of the, the uh, that's a part of the system of the world, and 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 we have to go hard against the system of the world. It, it, it's it's on us, and and we're victimized by it. If there's anybody that feels that I feel it, I really feel that. There are times when. When, when truthfully, I, I, I just, uh, the, by the time I wake up, I get telephone calls. And I can't go to bed early because I get telephone calls. And, and uh, people are wanting this and they're wanting that. And I, I feel this constant pressure and this constant pull. I live around the corner from the church, not, uh, not very far at all. And, and it would be very tempting for me to say, well, just, just you know, Lord, I, I, I'm, I'm just I'm involved in something I cannot help. But my friend, if it's going to be changed, it's going to be changed by me. Nobody else is going to come along and, and make time for me to pray. And nobody else is going to come along and change my schedule for me. And, and I'm real concerned about some of our churches and the schedule. I talk with our people. I'm concerned about ours. I said, uh, we're going to meet and we're going to streamline everything. Because we are falling into the system of the world. We are literally wearing the saints out. They are so busy doing the work of God that they cannot pray. And they can't seek God. And they can't get a hold of God. And we need to make our altars bigger. And the reason why is because God has blessed Calvary Gospel Church with a greater facility and a greater group of people than we've ever had before. But we need to take the old altar down and we need to build a much bigger altar and a much better altar where more sacrifice is committed in the presence of God. And then He's going to change laws. Now I remember when I first moved to Wisconsin that you couldn't go shopping on Sunday for cars. You couldn't go to the lumber companies. They also had the blue law in which you could not buy clothing. You remember that? Now there's no such thing. Some of you young ones say, I don't remember that. Well, I moved to Wisconsin 22 years ago, this very month, uh, in 1968. So uh, I pretty much uh, uh, be 23 years uh, here in just a few days. Uh, so... Uh, Wisconsin had the blue law. Texas had the blue law. You just couldn't go out and buy a suit on Sunday. Uh, you, could, you could not do that. You know, Richard Exley wrote a book entitled The Rhythm of Life. And 
Some of you have read it because I've heard you make reference of it. He said, now in the Old Testament, and you will find that there were, there were four functions that were vital and very important uh, for, the, for the welfare of, of uh, uh, the child of God. Number one, he, he speaks of worship. He said everybody needs to worship. They need a time of worship. Number two, he said we need to work. We need to be responsible. Number three, he said we need a time uh, of play. Basically, what he's talking about, recreation, uh, just some mad time where we just go out and just do what we want to do. I'm not talking about backsliding, but uh, uh, taking a vacation or, or whatever. And then, then the fourth thing, he said, we need to rest. And he points out some things. He said, now, in the Old Testament, you know, when uh, rest day came, you didn't have an option. You couldn't say, no, I'm not going to rest today. I'm going to work. No. In fact, you'd be put to death. And it appears that what God is saying is that, well, if you're going to go out and kill yourself by, by becoming a workaholic, uh, I'll just uh, get rid of you and get rid of you in a hurry so that uh, <clears throat> you'll just go ahead and die today. Uh, so I'm serious with you. He said uh, when it comes rest, uh, everybody's going to lay their tools down and everybody's going to rest. Why? Why such a system? So that uh, the children of Israel would not become worn out. But you see, the system of the world is wearing us out. It's wearing us out and it's victimizing us. And we've got so many push-button this and so many push-button that, and, and, and we can't, uh, we can't uh, well, we just we can't seem to live for God. And it appears that with all of this, that it would make living for God easier. It does not make it any easier. And I'm here to tell you, unless our churches develop a reputation of being a house of prayer, I'm talking about accentuating prayer, putting it in your schedule, sticking with it, being as hard as a junkyard bulldog about the issue, and calling people to pray. We'll never have a revival that'll be world-reaching. The day of Pentecost started, my friend, after ten days of praying in the upper room. And somehow we think we go in our office offices and get together a message that we read out of a book and come and stand behind our pulpits and deliver it and people are not moved and they're not touched because nothing has been put in it. And we give an altar call and two-thirds of our people go out the door while a few of them come down to the front. These things ought not to be. God's house must be a house of prayer. And he said, I want it to have a reputation as being a house where people pray and get a hold of God. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise God. Don't let the system of the Antichrist wear you out. The antidote of this is found in Isaiah 40. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. We need quiet moments in the presence of God. We need moments in which we go into the presence of God and empty our soul and empty our heart out to Jesus Christ. Could I inform you of something, brothers and sisters, if Jesus Christ, being God manifested in the flesh, had to pray daily, sometimes all night in prayer, saying, Thy will be done, O God. How much more should we understand and feel the importance of going to God in prayer? Praise God, praise God, praise God. Hallelujah. We need to build some bigger altars in Pentecost. Praise God. We really do, Brother Mattis. I say we really do. Praise God. When I had a monthly council meeting not too long ago and I began to talk about morning prayer, I said there's one thing we're going to do. We're either going to stop morning prayer or all of us are going to come and we're going to pray. Each one of you leaders are going to pray. And if you're not going to come pray, we're going to get up before our people and apologize that we had morning prayer and we're going to close the doors in the morning. But you're either going to come and you're going to pray or we're going to apologize to the people. And some of them came forth and said, well, this is what's happening. And I found out it's more convenient. And I found out. But they came one by one to me later and said, well, I am having problems praying. You see, you'll rise up to defend your own flesh every time. But we need to become like Abraham of old. You remember when Abraham killed the sacrifices and when he put them up on the altar and the vultures came to take them off. And the Bible says that he drew out his sword and he stood there by them. And when the vultures came, he said, these vultures will not take the sacrifice off the altar. And my friend, we need to put our bodies as a living sacrifice upon the altar of God. And we need to stand there with a drawn sword saying, nothing will take me out of the presence of God and off the altar. I will offer myself up to the Lord. 
tell you something. The places that I go and preach, I've asked people, how many of you have some affliction in your body? Most everybody has some affliction, but they'll raise their hand. And then how many of you have problems and uh, financial problems? Several hands up. How many of you are having problems with your family? And so forth and so on. But the number one thing that God's people are questing for is this. Listen to me carefully. I want to know the will of God, and I don't know the will of God. That's the number one thing. Now, the formula is found in Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world. Now, the word conformed to this world simply means don't be squeezed back into the mold that you came out of. And when we... When we when we look at the world, see, we, we think about baseball games and card games and pool halls and beer joints and bars. and the, Well, you know, that's when the Bible talks about that, that's, that's not altogether what the Bible addresses. The Bible addresses particular spirits and trends and things that pushes you into a mold. You see, the, the, the beautiful tree and the leaves come fall. The leaves fall off the tree. They fall on the, back on the ground, and after a while it rains and freezes and snow comes and comes spring, they're, what's happening to them? They're, they're, they're rotting, they're decaying, they're, they're, they're going right back to the soil. And, and, and what Paul is saying, that, that don't, don't go back to the same thing that you were before you came to God. You see, what, because what will happen to you, you'll resort to the same tactics and the same warfare that you had before you came to God. You see, our weapons are not but they're mighty to the pulling down the strongholds of Satan. Really. And you know the reason why that our weapons are spiritual? And you know the reason why that they're mighty? Because we don't, we don't fight with the same weapons that the world fights with. Where there's hatred, we fight with love. But let me tell you what happens when a man doesn't pray. When a man doesn't pray, he resorts to physical means to fight battles. And after a while, when his car doesn't start, why, he kicks the door in. I pastored a man one time that his wife called me and said, I'm real concerned about my husband. He just left the house. And I said, what happened? Well, the car wouldn't start, and he whipped out a 357 Magnum. Now, why in the world was carrying that thing around in the, in the glove compartment? I don't know. But anyway, he whipped it out and shot five holes through the door. Boy, he was a real good witness for Jesus, wasn't he? Wasn't he? And to his precious wife and two kids that he had. I wonder what they thought. Well, I know what they thought. She told me. And yet he wondered why his authority in the home didn't mean much. He said, you know, I don't know why they won't follow me. Well, I know the reason why they wouldn't follow him, because he wasn't going anyplace. <clears throat> Be not conformed to this world. But be you transformed by the renewing or the changing of your minds, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What's the secret to it? The altar. Wasn't that what he said? It's the altar. That's the secret to it. You know, we need to change our minds about some things. You know, the, you know, let me tell you something. A lot of us are getting too professional. We're, we're outgrowing the work of Christ. Really. One, one person even trying to defend himself when we talked about prayer, this is what he said. Well, I don't like to pray when there's a lot of people around because I need to pray about a lot of things that I have in my heart that I don't want anybody to hear me say. Well, <clears throat> I understand that. And I need those private moments in the presence of God. But I also understand this, and I address this situation in front of our leaders. I said, isn't it strange, though, that we expect sinners to come down to the altar, and they just pour out their adultery, and they pour out their lust, and they pour out everything in front of us, and we say, isn't this neat how that a person can confess his sins, and then we get some little something in our heart, and we want to hide it, and go someplace, and the truth of the matter, the reason why we want to hide it is quite often we don't get rid of it. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. 
Kalamu Shandalabahata. Undari Hikurama Sandalia Kundalabahata. Oh God, oh God, oh God. Oh God. Oh hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Oh God. Let's just lift our hands and praise the Lord. God, I love you. I worship you, God. Oh God. Oh God, oh God, oh God. Mm. Oh God. <laughs> now, I want to show you a label that was placed on the New Testament church, and this was not something they placed upon themselves. We placed that upon ourselves today. Acts 11, chapter verse 26, the Bible says, And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Now, they were called Christians by the non-Christian community. That was a label that was placed on them. Now, we're called Christian today because we call each other that. Uh, and when we start calling each other that, sometimes we, you know, the, the meaning is lost. We we have mindsets about things. Uh, for an example, uh, uh, when you hear the word latter rain, a lot of people they just, you know, because of the so-called what we call false latter rain movement in the fifties, and a lot of people, you know, I just don't like latter rain. Well, latter rain happens to be a a, a Bible term. Nothing wrong with it. You know, it's just a just that uh, people, uh, you know, took that term and it was abused and and uh, people were labeled latter rain. I wish I could have found some other label other than a Bible label to put on people that were not acting right. So, uh, you know, latter rain, uh, I don't struggle with that word at all. I think it's a good word because, you know, it's, it's vernacular you find in the Bible. Uh, among ourselves, we, we have uh, little... Uh, things uh, that we uh, develop and reputations we have. Some preachers are are noted to be one God preachers. We place that label on them. Uh, I am not noted to be a one God preacher. I preach one God, but I'm saying that that uh, uh, some preachers can't preach without preaching one God. Now, uh, I, I believe we should preach one God. We should believe one God. But uh, uh, when people begin to put labels on us, this is what happens. Uh, it's hard for a person who's been labeled as a one God preacher. It's hard for that preacher to, to, to quote uh, John 3:16 without uh, uh, without uh, explaining it. Uh, for an example, I've heard this, and you've heard it too. For God so loved the world that He gave His Himself. Uh, and, and we don't people who are labeled this they, they don't even like to use the term the Son of God. Well, that happens to be a Bible term. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it, you know. You follow what I'm saying? See, what happens is when we begin to label each other and, and these labels become uh, meaningful to us, uh, sometimes we can get so narrow-minded, you know. I mean, we close our minds so tight that if we fell on one pin, we'd poke both eyeballs out. It really, we just, you know, that, that's the way we do, you know. Another thing, we, we don't like the word compromise uh, because people who, uh, you know, the word compromise, we associate with with, with uh with being liberal. Uh, somebody asked me not too long ago, said, Brother Grant, are you a conservative or are you a liberal? I said, well, I'm a moderate. And, uh, <clears throat> oh, dear. They didn't like that. I said, well, you know, Paul said, let your moderation be known to all men. Uh, I, I don't guess there's anything wrong with that. Uh, well, <clears throat> you know what I mean. Uh, I said, well, uh, I guess I, 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 I know what you mean, but uh, I'm not for sure that I know what you mean. Uh, well, are you a compromiser? I said, yes, I do compromise in a lot of areas. I don't always get my way. <clears throat> I, I think that uh, the truth of the matter is, if you take a good look in the Scripture, uh, compromise is not as bad a word as what you might think. Now, some of you are closing your mind up to me right now. <laughs> because you like the label that's been placed on you. Now, there are certain things we don't compromise uh, we, we cannot compromise that. For an example, uh, John 3, verse 5, 
Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot. C-A-N-N-O-T. And we tell the, uh, the church world that they need to be born of water and the Spirit. We interpret that as spirit baptism and water baptism. And the word cannot, we say C-A-N-N-O-T. We say now, <clears throat> that uh, word uh, doesn't have any loopholes in it. C-A-N-N-O-T. Compromising. Our stand for holiness, I think it should be non-compromising. I've been doing a lot of teaching on holiness. We got we got trying. They're just they're just going by the way of the world. And and I told our young people, over my dead body, you'll do it. One lady said, "Well, Pastor Grant's not going to tell me what to do." I said, "Yes, I am too." No preacher's going to tell me. I said, "I am." Now you might not like it, but I'm going to tell you. And you may not live it, but I'm still going to because I happen to be the overseer of the flock in Madison. So I am going to tell you. Well, I'm not going to do it. I said, well, I'd be left up to you and God. But you're not going to intimidate me. You see, I think our doctrine of separation started where? At the altar. You know the reason why I think it started at the altar? It's because repentance, see, you can't separate. Humility, submission, repentance, all of these means what? It means death to self. And you know what the word death means? The word death literally means separation. Read James, the second chapter. Uh, he said, you know, he talks about faith and works. He said, show me your faith without your works. I show you my faith by my works. Faith without works is what? Dead. The reason why is because he said, as the body without the soul. And he's talking about death. He said, so you go and view a body and you say, here are the remains. What do you mean the remains? That means that's all that's left. There's something that's gone. See, it's separation. And separation starts in repentance. That's where it, it starts. And, 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 and there's no way that you can preach. You know, I can't understand. You know, Paul talks about people who despise holiness. I, I can't understand people that, see, some preachers are being labeled as holiness preachers. There are other, I have heard... Recently, people making statements like, well, if that's what holiness is, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Well, my friend, you've got to have something to do with holiness. For the Bible says, without it, no man shall see the Lord. Now, what they're teaching may, may or may not be holiness, but, but to say, I don't want to have anything to do with it. You know, we serve a holy God. Isn't that right? We receive the Holy Spirit, and we're going to the holy city, and we don't want to have anything to do with holiness. Now, you figure that one out. <clears throat> I mean, don't lose your brains over something. And just because something's been falsely labeled, don't be intimidated by it. You follow what I'm saying? Now, going back to this compromise, see, we are non-compromising in certain areas, but in other areas... Surprisingly, we compromise for our own benefit. Now, let me just show you something. All right, let's go to Luke uh, 14.33. Luke 14.33. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Now, here we're talking about giving up everything to follow God. And, and one of the problems of the, the church of the last day, the Laodicean church, you're fighting it here in Oak Creek. Brother Meadows will fight it in Fond du Lac. Brother Smaltz in Little Chute. Brother Aaron in North Milwaukee. Brother Grant in Madison is materialism. If you don't think you're fighting it, it's probably because you joined the wrong side. Now, truthfully, we're fighting it. Our people, you see... The, the truth of the matter is, people if, if people prayed, uh, they, they wouldn't have a problem with it. And if they are not praying, they have a problem with it. It's just that simple. Because materialism is the substitute that a person finds to compensate for that longing in his heart that uh, he doesn't find at the altar, see. The problem with Laodicea, 
we're rich and increased in goods and we have need of nothing. You know the reason why people don't pray at the altar? Because they don't think they need to pray. They say, well, i got a good job, money in the bank, insurance policy in case I get sick. I don't even have to trust God anymore. It's a lot easier to have an operation anyway than it is to pray through. Now, that's the attitude that some people are taking. See? But you see, why is it then we tell the church world that the word cannot, C-A-N-N-O-T, is a non-compromising word, and we see this, he cannot, C-A-N-N-O-T, be my disciple, and we say, I wonder if that really means what it's saying. You follow what I'm saying? And isn't it true that the problem that the Pharisees had was that they didn't follow straight through with all their interpretation and apply it properly? These things you ought to have done, not to have left the other undone. But on the other hand, there are certain things that we have to compromise. I went to a district conference, and they spent all afternoon discussing holiness standards. Somebody introduced a resolution stating that all the churches within one particular district should believe the same way and have the same holiness standards. Well, they talked about it for hours and hours, and I wasn't going to get involved in a conversation. And finally, I was called on, would you address this? Well, first place, I thought it was a good idea. And I think what we need to do is go ahead and uh, uh, vote this in but let's see how quickly we can agree on whose standard is going to be right. See, it's a good idea if everybody do it my way. If you'll let me set the standard, then, then that's a good idea. But if Brother Meadows wants to set the standard, I'll wait until tonight. That's another. See, Brother, Brother Papp is supposed to set it. I said, wait a minute. Uh, I don't think it's a good idea. So who's going to be responsible for setting this standard? See? And, and, and you find that's, that's pretty much the, the gist of the conversation in Acts 15. Isn't that right? They said, well, the conclusion of the matter is that, that we can't really come to a conclusion. So we'll not lay any yoke upon these men that they're not able to bear. And really when you look at it, you know, nobody in my church set the, sets the standard but me, and I can't get all of them to agree. I can't get them all to live by it. Now, if I can't get everybody in my church to live by the same standard, you think we're going to get all churches then? And everybody? You can't clone people and make people do certain things. You just can't do that. See? So the conclusion that we find... and the book of Ephesians is that we should contend for the unity of the Spirit till we all enter to the unity of the faith. And so what he's saying is that I guess we're going to have to compromise in this area to the unity of the faith because we don't all agree. But there's one thing that you'll find in the Bible, though, that is very non-compromising from God's point of view, and that is someone that tries to disunify the body. Where, where is it in the book of Proverbs it speaks of six things that God despises? Yea, seven is an abomination. Where is that in the book of Proverbs? Somebody find that real. Chapter 6. All right, chapter 6, 16. These things, six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. And notice what he says. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, and a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift to run into mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies. Now, <clears throat> the seventh thing. Now, I, I, I took a look at this, and I'm certainly not a Greek scholar, or a Hebrew scholar in this case. I... I could be wrong in my interpretation of this. So this is the gospel according to John. Okay. <clears throat> Talking about this, John. If I am right in looking at the original Hebrew, what he's saying is there are six things that God hates. 
And he says, I'm going to name those, but I'm going to put one more on that. The seventh one, however, is a degree of hate by God that is greater than all the other six. It's called an abomination. It's like, see, the whole thing about holding the standards in the Old Testament is the separation of sexes. Isn't that right? Deuteronomy 22, if a woman put on a man's garment, or a man puts on a woman's garment, this is an abomination of the Lord. The whole thing is a separation of the sexes because when you unify the sexes so that the roles are changed, God says, now, I hate that. And he says, but I want you to know how badly I hate it. I hate it with a passion. Now, what are you saying? There's six things that I hate. But I'm going to name one that I hate with a passion. He that soweth discord among brethren. See, it's a non-compromising situation. So we have in our fundamental doctrine, which our fundamental doctrine should be non-compromising. The basic and fundamental doctrine of this organization shall be the Bible standard of salvation, full salvation, which is repentance, baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and water by immersion for the remission of sins, and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking with other tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance. Moreover, brethren, we should not contend for our different views to the disunity of the body. Now, the whole thing is non-compromising. But see, we take the first part and we say, this is non-compromising. We throw it out the world and say, you've got to be born of the Spirit. But we can take the other part and we say, well, that doesn't really mean. <clears throat> you must be born of the water and the Spirit. Then we turn around the word cannot, C-A-N-N-O-T. And the whole problem, the whole crux of the matter with us, it doesn't make a difference if we're ministers or local saints, Sunday school teachers, what we are, is that there has to be a continuity and the way we interpret things. Now the Bible says in the book of Acts they were called Christians. That was a label. Not that they called themselves, but that the community put on them. And the reason why, they said they're acting just like Jesus acted, just like Christ acted. Now we call each other Christian. That's a label we put on each other in the Christian community, so to speak. If you ask the world about Christianity, do you see Life magazine, the recent issue, it says, who is God? And if you read that, really, coming out of that, a lot of people are asking, what is God? We're not noted to be Christian in the non-Christian community because they don't know who God or what God is. See, that's a label we put on ourselves. But the truth of the matter is, if there ever has been a time that we need to be Christian through and through, it's today. It's today. Uh, so, what we need to do is we need to take the Bible and open it up and say, now, I'm going to study the life of Christ and to the best of my ability be what He was. To the best of my ability. Really. You know the reason why we have too many nasty spirits among us? Talked about, I talked about Jesus and Judas. It's really amazing that Jesus would worship with some hypocrite. Isn't that something? I remember preaching revival one time, and one lady got up, went to the other side of the church, and she came up to me after. She said, "You noticed I moved?" And I said, "Well, no, I really didn't. Well, I did." So why? She said, "Well, that sister, I." I said, well, what's, well the, the thing about it, this lady had been brought up in the church where they didn't wear any red, wedding rings, and she came in and said, I'm a girl with a wedding ring. She said, well, I can't worship anybody with a wedding ring. Gold. Nasty. Couldn't worship. Well, I don't know that she was really worshiping where she moved to. <laughs> I mean, with an attitude like that, 
Jesus had all night prayer meetings with people, and one of them was a devil. At least he said what he said, and I believe him. Isn't that something? See, Jesus taught us how these things ought to be done. He didn't just lay down the law and say, now it's going to be left up to you. He left us an example as to how it ought to be done. My time's just about up. Listen to this. 1 Peter 2, 21. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. No bitterness in his mouth. You remember the time that they took Jesus, were taking him to the cross, and Peter pulled out his sword, and he whacked the the Roman soldier's ear off, and Jesus rebuked him and said, Now, man, I've been with you three and a half years. Can't you aim better than that? You should have knocked his head off. You remember that story in the Bible? You don't remember that? Well, how come sometimes we can get so mad we won't cut somebody's head off? Think about it for a moment. You remember that one time that they, they went to Samaria and a harlot came out to the well and Jesus said, Boys, don't look over there. But you know, I know all things and I know all about this woman. I tell you what to do. You guys go and get some bread and, and I'll cut across over here on that side and we'll have a picnic in the park and we'll talk about this, this whore. You remember that story? You remember the time that Jesus was was tied to the whipping post and was lashed upon his back? Do you remember what he said? Boys, just wait till I get free. I'll teach you a thing or so. I saw one of our well-meaning saints of one of our churches up at camp and something got on his nerves and he this is what the statement he said he said boy you think the wrath of God is bad you wait till you find my wrath and experience my wrath well, I just cringed I like to die I couldn't believe he said that but he did now in closing because I only have 51 seconds Okay. <clears throat> After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Are we really praying God's will in our lives? Are we praying that? I don't know how we can be praying God's will be done and we get up and we're so stubborn and hard-headed and self-willed and we want to have our way and if we don't, we get mad and we pout and we won't cooperate. When I took the church in Madison, one brother even boasted and he was involved in the ministry. He was not the pastor, but he's involved in the ministry. He said, I haven't shaken hands with that brother in eight years. I said, I can't believe that. I said, why? And he told me all about what this brother had done. And all he said, really, he's, he's not much of a Christian. I said, look, I'll tell you what I want to do. I put this brother on one week fasting and prayer, and I brought him in the house of God. I said, if you're going to be a preacher in this church, you're going to pray through, and I'll help you pray through. I lay hands on him every day and prayed for him. And I said, I'm going to stand in the vestibule by you. And when that brother comes by, you're going to make yourself shake hands with him and be friendly with him. You know, we're called disciples of Christ. And the word disciple, if you don't know it, happens to come from the word discipline. And discipline is the name of the game in Christianity. Did you know that? 
I said, you're going to get a good feeling about it. Now, maybe, maybe I do some things that, you know, I'm superintendent now, and I, uh, uh, you know, sometimes you get, you get to be superintendent, you look at things a little differently. But I remember I called one brother in that had license that said, I want to see your license. He put them in my hand. I said, they're not yours anymore. They're mine. He said, you can't take your li- my license away from me. I said, I just did. Why? He said, because you're not acting like Christ. And I went through a long list of things. The brother knelt down and asked me, he said, Brother Grant, would you lay your hands on me and pray for me? And I prayed him through. I said, I can't tolerate that kind of stuff. I said, let's love one another. and I will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And listen to this. And forgive us of our debts. Oh, God, forgive me of my sin. Purify me, Lord. Cleanse me, God. Now, this is the way he taught us to pray. Now, you tell me how you can get down and pray like this every day and get up and walk away and be worldly-minded and carnally-minded and earthly-minded. How can you do that? You know, the problem is a lot of us are not practicing this. And consequently, then, our house does not have the reputation of being a house of prayer. Now, we may stick this label on ourselves, I am Christian. But that's really a label that somebody else ought to put on us. Praise God. Oh, God. Hallelujah. Let's lift our hands and praise the Lord. Brother Maddox, with you, God. Oh, God, God.